I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. On today's episode, we have Dr. Nicole Sterdica. Nicole is a doctor of physical therapy and a certified strength and conditioning specialist through the NSCA. Nicole is currently the Director of Rehabilitation at OL Reign of the National Women's Soccer League. She specializes in helping athletes return to performance levels after injury and bridging the gap between rehab and sports performance for youth, collegiate, and professional athletes. Prior to physical therapy school, she was an All-American Division I soccer player at St. John's University in Queens, New York. She also went on to play semi-professional with the New York Athletic Club and the New Jersey Wildcats. In this episode, we dive into the top three ways athletes mess up return to sport when do no harm falls short. So without further ado, here is our episode with Dr. Nicole Sardica. We will be back after this quick message. Are you ready to start lifting heavier, outlasting others, and moving like a gazelle? Oh, you better get ready for the Endure and Repeat 20-week training program coming April 5th, 2021. Not only will the program include large amounts of program writing educational content, such as an overview explaining progressions and training concepts, but the program will also help you start prioritizing your own fitness, training consistently with sustainable strategies while getting yoked, and using trackable metrics to watch yourself progress. And the program includes videos for every single exercise to avoid you scratching your head about what you're supposed to be doing like other training programs out there. If you're willing to put in the work, this will be the most rewarding training process you have ever embarked upon. Head over to michellebolin-training.com to learn more. And now back to the show. Nicole, thanks for coming on. Super excited to have you here. Uh, today, we are going to talk about the top three mistakes field athletes make when returning to play after injury. But before we get there, we are dying to know what you did for your last workout in, in detail, in detail. All right. So first off, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to do this. And, um, Okay, so my last workout, I try to always do things with my athletes as I'm doing on-field rehab with them. So this morning, not too long ago, I did an on-field session with an athlete where um, she, I was playing a ball into her. She had to turn and play a ball forward or turn and shoot. Um, so I was getting some on-field work. But the last workout I did for me and not for one of my athletes was um, two days ago with my husband. We did... Uh, rear foot elevated split squats, uh, barbell hip thrusts, mm, single leg hamstring curls, single leg heel raises, and uh, there's one other. Oh, and a belt squat. Man, leg day. Don't miss yeah. leg day. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> In all fairness, that's all I do is like, like I'll occasionally like go and do some pull-ups or something, but yeah, <laughs> I'm definitely all legs. <laughs> when I worked in team athletics, you know, I am pretty like 
I'm a very competitive person. And then I had, you know, a solid group in the summer sessions. And of course, throughout the year, but summer, it was like, you know, six athletes, six days a week, the same, same girls. And they, of course, instinctively love to trash talk. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, like you can't do this forever. And every time we did conditioning, I would do it with them. And I would just be like straight up dominate. And it would be like the highlight of my day. And then I'd look back and be like, wow, I'm 20 something years old. And I just beat like an 18 year old. And I feel pretty good about myself. That's pretty terrible. Yeah. A <laughs> few days ago, we, I did an on-field session with um, two of our athletes who are just at seven months post ACL reconstruction. And the one of them is ready for like light contact and perturbation stuff. So I'm playing, but not like straight out tackles yet. So I am playing like a kind of passive defender where I'm just like, you know, giving her some light contact, but then chasing her down the line to put pressure on her. So I'm doing like 40 meter sprints 12 times in a row, no rest. And I'm like, (laughs) I'm getting a tough work. I literally was like, where's the AED (laughs) dying over here? Like this is a harder workout for me being a passive defender for you. Um, than it is for you but yeah I I'm definitely like super competitive with them we have a a little nutmeg contest going so we always try to nutmeg each other um, me and one of the athletes that's rehabbing right now so definitely some competition there which is good because keeps keeps me honest yeah and I think they respect that as well definitely it's definitely it definitely makes it more fun cool uh, the rear foot elevated split squats, are you like building up to a specific load or is it just kind of like maintenance of, of strength at this point for you? So actually right now for me, so I fractured my tibia and fibula years ago and I still have a titanium rod in my tibia oh. and I still notice a lot of asymmetries um, right to left. And so for me, it's more about like I for years, I, it was like I was trying to get up to a certain um, like I was trying to hit 200 pounds for a three rep max of a back squat. Um, like it, I ended up not ever hitting, I, th- I got it for a one rep max, but not a three. Um, but now I'm just like, I'm just focusing on trying to like, I hate using the term correct, but like help my symmetries a little bit and, and not have such a large difference to my right and left side. So I actually like brought my load way down um, and the intensity way down. And I'm just focusing on not compensating through my hip, which is something I had typically done on my right side is like shifting everything into glutes as opposed to using my quads, which um, is a massive issue for me. So. And I mean, that seems like something that you talk about to a pretty large extent with like, you know, post-op ACL kind of stuff too. So. Yeah, I feel like I have to practice what I preach, right? If I'm always telling my athletes, like, don't shift back into your hips. And meanwhile, every time I add, like, substantial load, that's what I end up doing. I'm like, okay, I should probably try to help this a little bit. For sure. Um, So the one thing I I did want to ask you about before we get to our list that is very eagerly anticipated. So on a recent podcast, I guess not all too recent, but on a podcast with Doug Kachijan, um, the Resilient Podcast, like seven or eight months ago, you guys had a really, really good chat about why the guiding principle of do no harm can be kind of like misconstrued, misapplied, and might not be as effective as it, as it seems. Can you talk more about that? 
Yeah, I think it's just way more convoluted than a simple black and white do no harm. Like everything, nothing in sport rather is black and white, right? So we know that if an athlete or if anyone has any injury, they're at increased risk of having that injury again, because the single greatest risk factor of any injury is the previous history of that injury. So right now, for example, I, again, like I said, I have two athletes who are seven months post-op ACLR. When they go back to playing, regardless of how good or bad their rehab might be, they're at an increased risk of a second ACL injury. So here I am putting someone on the field who I know is at increased risk compared to one of their teammates who hasn't had an ACL injury. And so if we're going to say do no harm, well, like I'm knowingly putting them at risk. So instead of do no harm, what we should instead be focused on is reducing the risk of harm, right? Or reducing the risk of that re-injury. Um, I think that should always apply to us. Like, I think we always, as I think as a rehab professional, the mindset can, can go towards being reactive, but I would much rather be proactive in nature and help to reduce the risk of injury ahead of time. And so, yeah, I think that's how we should try to frame things is we're not, we're never going to prevent injuries. And we should never think that that's our job because we will always fail. <laughs> so when you use the word proactive in terms of like ACL rehab, so how do you, what's your mind frame around that word in terms of like, we can't ever predict injury no matter what. It's extreme, extremely complex. So what in your mind is being proactive? I think doing the basics, right? I think in, in, Athletes who participate in women's soccer, I think that there's not always access to, to doing the basics well. Uh, some low-hanging fruit would be implementing a good strength and conditioning program. Yeah. And so you're a professional athlete and you're not going into the gym during the course of an entire season. That's a massive issue. And, you know, you can't just point to one thing and say this caused this injury but you can certainly think about things that might have large contributions to that risk. And so I think like really basic, a good S and C program is crucial. And so I, like I do know of professional athletes and professional teams granted 2020 was a crapshoot and like really like a unicorn year. So I understand because of COVID restrictions, it wasn't all that like, a lot of modifications had to be made um, and programs had to be changed. And I totally understand that, but there's no excuse for professional athletes not going into a weight room. That, that's just plain and simple um, setting them up to fail. They're not going to be the best athletes they can be. And it's a really easy way to help reduce the risk of injury. And unicorn year makes it sound like it was magical. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was what's like, what would like the antithesis of a magical year be? Like it was that it was just like a hellhole year. <laughs> some, some kind of a mythical gremlin. No, but yeah, I love, it, um, like, I, I, I love just that line of thinking where it's like, I think like you and I are both physical therapists, right? So there's this, there's this phobia or there, there's this like undue importance placed upon like like the avoidance of risk, like, especially I see this in like in hospitals and I still see a little bit of like geriatric folks with like home health. And it's like, one of the big goals is the prevention of falls and a really easy way to prevent falls is to just make sure that these, 
you know, these individuals just don't do anything at all. But then it's like, you know, what are we actually getting them better for? What are we actually training them to do? It's sort of like a, it's like a misguided direction of physical therapy. And, and in your case, it's like, you know, yeah, like re really easy exercises and avoiding the sport is going to be a really effective way to keep an athlete quote unquote safe, but you're going to absolutely be doing harm in the sense that they're not going to be prepared for that end stage activity. Exactly. I heard a really good quote. I forget who it was now. And I apologize um, for not being able to um, say who this quote is by, but something about like, if, if a team gave me like a million dollars and said, I don't want any injuries this year, you know, how, what would you do? And I would take all the athletes and sit them down and say, you're not available to play in this game and we would get no injuries. Right. Like there's always going to be a risk when they got onto the field. Uh, actually, it was Ryan Timmons recently on the Brookie and Burjo podcast, which is um, Dr. Peter Bruckner and Darren Burgess's podcast. And Ryan Timmons, who's a hamstring researcher, said that like if he wanted to if a club gave him all the money in the world, all the resources and said, find athletes who won't get hamstring strains, I would get all young athletes who have never had a hamstring strain. And then start building them up, you know, with doing, you know, things like the Nordic hamstring exercise and um, exposing them to high speed running and stuff every every once a week or once every 10 days and helping to reduce the risk that way. And like, yeah, if we wanted to prevent injuries, that's easy. Just don't participate. But obviously athletes will participate in their sport. So we need to mitigate their risk. Totally. It makes me think of one of my favorite fortune cookie quotes of all time, like a ship in a harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are for, right? Yeah, like it's exactly. like wrapping athletes or even geriatric patients in bubble wrap is not really doing anyone good, but potentially some like misapplied metric that you're using to judge efficacy. And on a personal note, it's like, so I do a lot of like mountaineering and technical climbing. And it's like that entire domain is built on risk mitigation. Like if you if you 100% don't want to fall off a cliff face, then just don't do don't that. Don't go. <laughs> yeah. But then but then but then you're not doing the activity. And then you know professionally, I manage a lot of runners, and it's kind of the situation that you were talking about in that episode with Doug, where like if I have an athlete that's trying to qualify for like let's say Olympic trials, and they have some kind of a stress reaction going on but we know that they're kind of close there, then like do no harm gets thrown out the window slightly because that's an adult that can then make an informed decision as to whether or not they want to press to continue on with their training. And I think that's what I really like about your work is taking these various factors into consideration before telling an athlete like, nope, you're like, we're just not going to do this. You're shut down now. Yeah, there's so much context involved in every decision about what an athlete does or doesn't do, what any human does or doesn't do. So you're exactly right. Like if there's an athlete, and we also have to remember, like, like I work in professional women's soccer. They are not making a shit ton of money. So a lot of our athletes in the off season will go to play in Australia or in other leagues where the seasons are kind of opposite. So we have athletes who play in two professional seasons per year. Now, is that ideal from my perspective? Like, no, I'd much rather they all stay here in the off season and train with me, like bottom line. <laughs> but like that is how they make an income for their year, right? Like they're not making a lot of money in one league. And so they have to supplement their income in other ways. Hopefully we get to a point that female athletes in general don't have to do that or athletes who play in women's sports don't have to do that. 
Um, but right now that's where they're at. And like to your point, the Olympics hopefully will be this summer um, if they continue. And so if there's an athlete who right now has an injury or is coming back from an injury and wants to participate in the Olympics in July, maybe right now is the time to be conservative. But as we get to May and June and they need to be ready for July, then yeah, maybe we push them a little bit and say, hey, we're trying to get you into the Olympic squad, into the Olympic roster. So let's push you a little bit now so that you can get there and, and achieve your goal. So there always needs to be context around every decision. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like the the exposure to harm is a necessity of physical preparation. And it doesn't mean that you know, we're just like flying by the seat of our pants and we're just going to throw someone into an incredibly stressful, high training load environment. We can do that in an intelligent way. But again, like not to just beat this drum over and over and over, but like if, if we don't stress these athletes, then they're never going to get to where they want to get to. Yeah, exactly. Then they're just going to be civilians, like regular people <laughs> and not athletes. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I would even argue that like there, you know, there's a, like even the, the, civilians and just like the gen pop folks that Michelle and I work with. It's like, you know, we like people that have the mindset of, I want to fucking deadlift 405 pounds. Like I want I want, like, I understand that there's a risk there and I might hurt myself, but I think the greater risk is not doing anything physical. And I think that's at least for me in my, in my practice, like that's the mindset that I try to engender that like, yeah, I mean, there, there's a risk to all of these things to some degree, but it, it pales in comparison to the long-term risk of never doing stuff. Yeah. When I, before I started working here, I had my own practice and I did a lot of home visits and I had this one older woman who I worked with regularly and her big thing was like, she walked her dogs for like two hours a day. And like, that was her activity. Cause otherwise like she didn't do very much. She lived alone, like didn't have a family, like didn't have kids or grandkids or anything, just her and her dogs. And so on the one hand I could be like, you know, she, if she ha had a complaint of like pain or something, uh, whether that was like knee or hip or whatever pain or foot pain, or if she felt unbalanced, yeah, I could say, okay, let's cut your t walking time down. But why make her afraid of the only activity that she does in a day? Like, isn't the greater risk here her not doing anything and then becoming sedentary and not getting any loading or any exercise at all? Like, that's the greater risk. Yeah, I, it, re I it really does that. come down to a lot of you know, people making things based on making decisions based on fear or putting fear in their clients based off like, quote unquote, good or bad things and not allowing people to be exposed to these types of activities. Same thing in like the weight room, for sure. Yeah. And I, I get that fear, like being here when a when a head coach or the, the club CEO says to you, like, is so and so ready? You want to say yes, right? Like you want to be like, oh, yeah, they can play in this game. And there are times where we have to push the athletes a little bit, but right now we're in week four of preseason this week. Like now is maybe not the time to push. Like now is maybe the time to be conservative and, and build them up uh, more conservatively. But yeah, I, I totally understand the fear of like, or, or being like, Hey, we only have like, this, it doesn't, this isn't a specific example. I don't, I don't, this, it doesn't apply to my team, but let's say you're a team who only has like, one star forward and and that's who scores all your team's goals and you don't really have anyone who can really take that athlete's place um and like if that athlete becomes hurt you're like 
that's a kind of a big loss for your team. And as the medical department or the performance department, you don't want that athlete to be missing games either. So maybe you say, actually, I don't want them to do this training session because they might be hurt and not be able to play in the game. But if they never train, we're also not preparing them to do their best in the games. So I totally understand like the fear side of it and wanting to look good in your position and your job. But we also like, we have to push the boundaries a little bit, like always remembering that um, progressive overload principle, right? Like they're only going to get better if we keep pushing them a little bit past their limits in a controlled way. And I think the like the fear thing, it seems like one of the themes in this podcast is like the inverted U curve, but like the, the fear thing exists on kind of like an inverted U curve where it's like, it's not particularly useful to never fear training loads at all. Because then yeah. you're just training, then you're just training like everyone did when they were 15 or 16, right? But if you if you overdo the fear, then you're just like you're intentionally not loading yourself and you're you're not causing the adaptation that you need to excel at the activity that you want. So it's like I think I think as an athlete, as a coach, as a therapist, you always have to understand like like risk reward profiles yes. and just work to keep them like honest and authentic and not get out of control and irrational. Absolutely. I think the risk reward thing is huge. Like I use that term five times a day talking with athletes and coaching staff, like, yeah, you could do this, but the risk here outweighs the reward for me. So for example, like we have a, a center back who has a quad strain and let's say we're doing a session that is the center backs or the, the back line sending long balls into the forwards. It's really a drill or a session for the forwards to shoot on goal but the outside backs and the center backs are playing long balls in for that to happen. Well, like playing long balls with erectus femoris strain probably isn't the best idea for like an entire session. So there you're not getting really anything out of the session. You're just there serving balls. You're not getting the learning or the training that you need. And so the risk reward ratio isn't good enough for me for you to do that session. Like I'd rather you sit that one out and then work on a defensive minded session so I think like always having that in the back of your mind is so important. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, it makes me think like the exact corollary when I'm managing these kind of higher level runners, like if they're starting to get really, really run down, but their peak races in two weeks or in four weeks, it's really easy to drop volume because those aerobic adaptations won't like really degrade in that time. But yeah. as long as they get in that, that, that race specific, that pace specific work, then it's like, well, we're optimizing risk benefit. Cause if we drop volume, you're probably not going to get hurt, but you're still going to be prepared day of. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. All right. So let's, uh, let's kick off this list. Shall we do it? Do it. So this is going to be the top three ways that field athletes mess up return to sport training. And I'm going to kick things off with mine and then we'll go to Nicole and then Michelle back to Nicole combination of me and Michelle back to Nicole. So kicking things off with mine, one caveat, unlike the two of you, my exposure to field sport would be ultimate Frisbee. So similar to soccer in some ways, yeah. but I, you know, I, obviously very different, in a lot of other ways. So this is going to be through the lens of my experience uh, playing ultimate Frisbee and then kind of managing some high level ultimate Frisbee type athletes. And mine would be not including any sport specific drills in the early or middle stages of rehab. So I think about, I think about an ultimate Frisbee player I managed like three or four years ago and I got her maybe after like 12 or 16 weeks of another PT had been working with her and she hadn't yet thrown a Frisbee 
And like, you know, like the, the act of throwing a Frisbee is, is not really going to strain the ACL all too much. Um, in my mind, you know, probably at week eight, she could have been working on just like, like pivoting off a fixed foot, working on flicks, working on backhands, kind of working some light tactical situations so that she didn't get too far removed from, and I think she was a, she was a handler. So she was like the one making like really high degree of difficulty throws. And it's like, that's a skill set that she could have been working to maintain really, really early on in the process. And because it just wasn't seen as part of the rehab process, it didn't get any attention. And then she to work really, really hard to regain those skills. And it just makes me think kind of from like a psychological perspective, if someone's identity is wrapped up as being like an ultimate player, a soccer player, it's really, really helpful to keep them doing things that look like ultimate or soccer or whatever the field sport is. So you know, I know for me over the past couple of years, like I, I want to get that person doing things that look like that sport as soon as possible. Yeah, I could not agree more with that. Um, that's like one of the things on my list. It's not my number one thing, but it's one of the things on my list that we'll get to later. Yeah, like if you're going to be doing single leg balance with an athlete anyway, why not include like single leg balance while throwing a Frisbee back and forth? Like it doesn't have to be exactly in the context that they would do in their sport, but for the psychological reasons, like you mentioned, and then like literally the day that you have a, a soccer player say like, oh, we're going to use a soccer ball today. Like they get the biggest smile on their faces. They get so excited. Like, why would you not want to introduce that as early as you can? I saw Nicole smile when Tim was talking and I was like, dang, he snagged hers. I was like, yeah, that was, <laughs> that was number two on my list. Um, well, kind of, it's like, it's yeah, well, I'll, I'll get there. It's, it's like kind of that. So we'll get there. And, my, and I will. No, and I will say, and, and I, I hope this doesn't step on Michelle's toes too much with her point, oh, but I think- do it, Tim. Well, no, just, just the act of including sports-specific drills, it keeps a person enmeshed within the culture of their team yes. and lets yes. them continue to do activities with their team. That is all that I will say. That, <laughs> when we get to that, like, yes, that is so important. But I, I'm assuming we're going to touch on that more when Michelle makes her point. So my number one um, mistake. Start with three. Start with three. Oh, my third. Start with like the least exciting. Oh, okay. okay. (laughs) So the third one is giving into external pressure. Um, And so it's like a a parent, if you're a, a youth athlete and a parent or a coach is saying that they really want you to go back, but you A, don't want to, or B, don't feel ready to. Even if you're a professional, especially if you're a professional athlete and you feel the need to be back to help your team win a game or to fulfill a contract or something like that, um, giving into that, I think, is a big mistake. Um, you have to be psychologically ready to return. And only you can know that if that you are or not. There's, there's tools to measure that, of course. Like the ACL RSI is a great tool to measure psychological readiness. And like here at OL Rain, we have a clinical and sports psychologist who works with our all of our athletes, but in particular our injured athletes as they're getting ready to return to sport to address that psychological readiness and fear of re-injury. Yeah, I, I, I've had so many youth athletes, like I'm thinking like dancers and, gy- and gymnasts who are, you know, their age of um, where they reach like their peak of their career is really low. And they'll be eight, nine years old and you, their parents, their moms in particular, really want them to get back as quickly as possible. 
and the child is there saying like, I don't really want to do this, you know, and you can just tell that they don't really want to be doing what they're doing and not faking their injury, of course, but maybe prolonging or are saying that their symptoms are a little bit worse than what they might actually feel and just prolonging that process that they don't have to go back too soon. So I, yeah, giving into external pressure, I think is a massive issue. So to kind of loop in something that we were, we already discussed. So you now work in high performance, right? So like a form of external pressure might be legitimate financial incentive to get back in a timely manner. How do you like, how do you think about that? And is that just another instance of like, like risk reward cost benefit? Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a risk reward type thing. Usually like, I mean, no one in the NWSL is making millions of dollars playing in the NWSL. So usually like if somebody's going to be out for a couple of months, then workers comp kicks in and pays their salary. And so it's, I don't see that as being a massive pressure right now. Um, however, like I said, some of them will go on loan to other clubs so that they can keep getting paid throughout, you know, throughout the entire year and they're playing throughout the entire year. They'll go to Australia and play in the league there in our off season to make more money. And so if somebody ends our season with an injury, but feels this pressure to make a couple extra thousand dollars for the three months of off season, like they're going to go and play. Right. And so that's it. That's an external pressure of needing this financial income to support themselves, support their families um, because where they currently are, you know, it's, in women's sports, we just don't pay enough. Just out of curiosity, um, so what's like the risk award in terms of like, okay, if the season ends and I go play in Australia, and yes, I just did connect myself to being a professional athlete right there. <laughs> and I get hurt, say like the last, you know, game of the season, and then come back to you. How does that play out in terms of like, oh, you went out and played and got hurt kind of a thing? Does that have any effect at all? It depends on each person's individual contract with the club. But yeah, if they go and get hurt in the off season while playing with another team, they come back, they have a contract with our team uh, or, or with the club. And so, and this goes, you know, not, this isn't just our club. This is any player in the league. So mm -hmm. if you have a, a year round contract with the league or with the club, you get hurt playing in Australia and you come back, you're still going to get paid by our league and you have all preseason to get better. So like they don't necessarily see that as like a massive risk, right? Gotcha. It's like, Oh, okay. It's preseason. I still have the whole rest of the season to get better. Fair. It's Am more of like the financial incentive is, is what drives it. Understandable. All right. So I'm on right. Number two, killing it. That basically Tim, kind of stole my thunder a little bit, but it's basically uh, someone who's injured, not continuing with day-to-day -day team schedule and culture. So basically being separated from the team. Um, it can be very difficult because sometimes practice times are seen as an opportunity to rehab, but being away from the team can help make them feel isolated, so on and so forth. And it's even more difficult to, to come back. But there's also an additional strain on the athlete. It's kind of like double time, like they have to go to practice and do, do rehab on the side as well. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's definitely, I'm a 
huge proponent of getting them involved with the team as often as possible, as early as possible. So like, I'll give you the example that I use with my team. So our team trains on the field. Right now we don't have games yet other than like scrimmages or friendlies. So Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. So five days a week they're on the field. Twice a week we have them in the gym. There's some athletes who I haven't come in and do a third gym session just based on like their previous injuries and risk factors. But so the injured athletes who are rehabbing and can't yet playing games, I have them do what they can with the team and then watch the rest of the session. They're doing the, the, the team's gym sessions with their teammates. And then I just add on to the end, any like rehab specific things or injury specific things that they need to be doing. I just, yeah, having them isolated from their team. And I totally get it. Like I understand if practice is from 10 to 12, that's an ideal time to be doing your rehab. So you don't have to stay for eight hours. Right. But (laughs) like, this is what you're getting paid to do. And let's say you don't, let's say that you never watch a team training session or you're not integrated with your team. Now you're missing out on like that, that cultural dynamic and being being part of a team, which is like that cohesion and the culture and identity of the team. And also the coach making coaching points and talking about the tactical side of the game. So now when you do get back, you have no idea where the team is, right? Like uh, on a day-to-day level, you're not in uh, like in, in the, I don't know how to explain, like you're not in the trenches with them. You're just kind of rejoining from afar and and i think that there's definitely benefit to getting them in so that's my personal philosophy is i get them integrated as much as possible i do understand the other side of it and the logistical side of things but i mean i i stay here until i'm here early in the morning and stay late at night because i'd rather have them do it in off hours as opposed to during the training session i think about my collegiate track and cross-country career of which I was injured for, I mean, hell, probably, probably half of it. And we used to joke about it being like athletic training jail. Like if you couldn't run with the team, like you were just relegated uh, to this little room with like weird creams and ultrasound machines and like isolation things. And it really, you know, like, I think that like that nomenclature is telling, like it felt like, like it felt like a punishment. It felt like more of a punishment than actually being injured. Just that, that isolation from the camaraderie. So at Northeastern University, when I was a strength conditioning coach there, they had a very unique sports performance department and uh, we were extremely integrated. And every single lift and team experience, there was a strength coach and athletic trainer there. So the athletic trainer attended every lift. So she either, and I worked with a, a fantastic athletic trainer named Kenny DeLude, shout out to her, but she would either run the athlete's rehab session, integrate it into the lift, come to talk to me before the lift and say, hey, what? how can we make this look like the same lift that the team is doing with incorporating these types of exercises? Or they would just do the lift and I would make modifications in advance just so they can really feel like they are basically doing the same thing as a team. Yeah, that's exactly what we do here. I'm in constant communication with our performance director, Andy Wiseman, and he'll do the team, like he'll program the team's lift. And then I just go in, we use Team Builder. Um, I just go into Team Builder and modify or make additions to the team lift for each individual athlete who needs any modifications. Same thing with when they're on the field, we have the GPS live tracking from Stat Sports. I can see what the team's loading looks like in that training session. And I'll have my rehabbing athletes on the side 
trying to hit similar types of um, of loading that the rest of the team is doing. So if the team is doing a lot of small-sided games that day and they're not really getting up to high speeds, they're not covering a lot of ground, but there's a lot of XLs, D cells, change of direction, then that's what I'll work on with them on the sides just in a modified way. That's awesome. All right, you're up. <laughs> no pressure. My second one is <laughs> is kind of tying in to Tim's first one, which is not having an on-field rehab program. So really just not including any sports-specific type activities. I think there's such a huge jump going from gym-based rehab to then like returning to sport, right? Like that's such a huge difference. And yeah, being, you know, doing all of your lifts in the gym and even having a great SNC program, like we still have to have that transfer over to your sport. And if you just go from being a very controlled and closed environment, where it's just you and the PT or you and the strength coach, and then you go rejoin your team, you now have in soccer, 10 other individuals on your team that you have to see where they're at and make decisions based off of the ball, the referee, the boundaries of the pitch, the time limitations, the 11 players on the other team, all of the space in the field. Like there are so many decisions that you have to make and so many things you have to be aware of cognitively. So not allowing the athletes to get used to that as kind of a bridge, uh, I think is a huge mistake. It, like it, it's, it's interesting hearing you say that. Cause it just makes me think of kind of the, I don't know if this is the right word, but like the hubris of physical therapists and strength and conditioning coaches thinking that like getting perfect ranges of motion, getting perfect isolated strength, getting like really, really nice strength and like a, and like a back squat or a deadlift is really going to matter all that much when it comes to field performance. Yeah, I agree 100%. Like, yeah, it's important. It's for sure something that we should aim for is, you know, getting them nice and strong and powerful and fast and all of that. But if they never use that in a way that's relevant to their sport, like, we have to always remember that we're not training weightlifters like in field sports. Obviously, if you work with weightlifters, that's what you're doing. But I'm not trying to make my center back a powerlifter. I'm trying to make her a really great center back. And so it doesn't matter how much they squat if they get pushed off the ball in the game. So I think that's a, a really important thing to consider. No, I mean, I absolutely love you saying that. And Tim and I talk about that, all, that topic all the time on this podcast. I was going to ask you about, you know, do you ever see when strength becomes a detriment? Because, you know, on team sports, there's, you know, 25 different personalities and some people really gravitate towards you know, pushing weight and really wanting to um, move weight, or they've come from Olympic level where they're doing hang cleans at heavy loads and it looks terrible. And it's like, you have to fight those previous experiences. Have you ever had like an athlete just kind of hit the loading really hard where you're like, maybe you have to explain to them why that may not be the best uh, supportive strategy for their um, performance? Yeah, in soccer, there's not much of a culture of heavy lifting. And actually, like, we're on the opposite end of the spectrum where we're trying to, like, show them the, <laughs> the benefits. But what they do tend to do, we run into this issue early in preseason, and we immediately stopped this culture, was a lot of the athletes will go and go for a five-mile run on the weekend or yeah. after a training session, stay behind and do full-field sprints. And, like, Hey, we are giving you what you need. We're giving you the loading that you need for the week to perform without overdoing it. 
And so you coming in on a Monday and telling me that you strained your quad and I look on your Instagram stories and see that you ran five miles on a trail, like there's some questions there. Like, why were you doing that? Because we're loading you in a way so that that doesn't happen. And so in, in soccer and in, in athletes who compete in women's soccer, where in the past there hasn't been much investment in the support staff and the performance team and the sports science and sports medicine teams, a lot of them felt like they had to take their fitness into their own hands. And so that's mm. what they would do. And so there's this culture in the, in our league and in women's soccer in general in the world, I think where they just feel like they have to do this. And, and I've had to do this myself for so long that I know what I'm doing now. And now that we have better investments in the teams and in the clubs, and we have people like, you know, like Andrew here at OL and, directors throughout the league and our sports medicine we our health and performance team here at ol like we're giving them enough now and and it's a hard transition for them to make but that's what we're trying to change culturally i think that connects the two um overall in general themes or maybe problems in the physical therapy and conditioning world of quote unquote, more is always better. And then Mm -hmm. the second one is hard work only means physical hard work. So we get these athletes who are driven by competition and they are hard workers, but they only connect it to just pushing more and more and more and more. Yeah, even myself, like I find it hard after being a college athlete, I found it really hard to do a workout and feel like it was effective if I wasn't like dying at the end. And I think uh, it, it takes a lot of education. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> like, if I do a workout and at the end, I'm like, okay, I'm still fine to do more. And it, I think that's a really hard connection for athletes to make, um, especially at higher levels, is that every workout doesn't, you don't have to PR every time you're in the weight room and, and you shouldn't be. <laughs> and, and you don't have to hit your max speeds every time you go out onto the pitch. And in fact, you shouldn't be. And I, I think that's a difficult connection for athletes to make, but one that I do think like there is a paradigm shift happening now just with more education and more investment in the support teams. Yeah. It, it also, it, you know, makes me think like Michelle, and I really do love to talk about like how strong is too strong or like the detriments of getting too strong, but the, you know, the circles that Michelle and I tend to run in are like, you know, 30 year old, 40 year old kind of Uber beat up meatheads where it's like <laughs> these people have just been pushing weight for a long fucking time where it's like, we talked to a couple other people on this podcast that also, you know, have professional situations where the people that they serve are very averse to the weight room and averse yes. to loading. And it's like, in, in that case, it's like, no, there, there's not such thing as too strong. Like we just need them to go into the weight room more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right now, like they're like, there is no such thing as a ceiling effect right now in in our in our club and in our league because it, there just isn't that culture and that history of of lifting in soccer in general. I mean, yeah, I totally agree. I went through collegiate level like soccer, and there was not that culture at all. And even when I worked in the D one setting, you gosh, it was so difficult to get soccer players to step foot in the weight room. But then I worked with like hockey, which is a very different culture, and uh, it was like the polar opposite. I will say like to our athletes credit, like they love coming into the gym now yeah. and you know, they're always asking questions they're like, Hey, can I come and do an extra session in the gym with you? And I love that. I'm like, for sure. I'll be here every day, for <laughs> you know, like definitely come in. So we are like, the culture is changing and our athletes, I think 
they're just so eager to learn and, and get better that like, as long as you tell them the why they'll, they'll do what you ask as long as they understand why you're asking them to do that. Very cool. So uh, Michelle and I's collective number one is going to be doing too much linear slow jogging without the sprinting or change of direction work. And credit to the like the resilient guys. I think they did the podcast about this two or three months ago. But it's just something that we see so commonly. And I think the genesis of this comes from how the medical establishment typically writes rehab programs and the notion that running at a 10 minute mile or a 12 minute mile over a long period of time is somehow less damaging and more important than relearning how to make cuts or sprint. Like you talk about accelerate, decelerate, where it's like the far more effective thing to do in the case of a field sport athlete is do regress versions of change of direction, acceleration, deceleration, and then be able to progress those over time as opposed to, all right, you're going to do three months of really slow jogging and then kind of fucking have at it. Mm -hmm. But do you think that's more of like a lack of education in terms of our fields? Because, you know, I went through a whole master's program in strength conditioning and all we were taught to do is technique for barbell lifts. Like we didn't learn anything in terms of how to teach people to change direction or movement capabilities like on the field. And, you know, I can't speak for PT, but I'm assuming you don't, you don't learn that either. We, yeah, for sure. We don't learn that. <laughs> we don't even learn like the basics of strength and conditioning. So like that <laughs> is for the most part, I'm sure there are programs out there that do. Um, mine didn't. Um, yeah, I, I think that in general, from a physio perspective that we, yeah, we just don't have a strong enough educate, like core education and foundational strength and conditioning principles to be able to apply that. And then I think that, I think that it's like from an SNC perspective, you know, like you said, your master's program, you went through like the techniques of barbell lifts, but not necessarily the change of direction and cutting. I think there's a lot that we just don't know, right? Like, I think mm -hmm. there's so many different schools of thought and different people who have different beliefs and mindsets. But if, if textbooks are written based on evidence, like, how do you really study that? You know, like, so, so I think it's, you can basically like, implement a strategy with an athlete or the group of athletes and see how they progress and document that. But then you don't have a control group. And so I think it's just hard to, there's some things that just are hard to apply like scientific um, principle to. And so it's harder than to pass that on educationally from an academic standpoint. But yeah, I definitely think that there, it depends on the sport. And so getting back to like the original point of, you know, going linear and not having this emphasis on cutting and change of direction. We always have to relate it back to what the injury is if we're talking about rehab. And so if someone has a soleus strain and we're having them, we think that the first thing they should be able to do is a long, slow jog. Well, like that's going to irritate the soleus more than doing a few short sprints and changes of direction would. And so we have to have a better understanding of, tissue level healing and, and what each muscle is being asked to do in an isolated way during compound movements and then being able to adjust for that. 
I, I feel like there's just this overwhelming thought in the medical establishment, especially like if you talk to surgeons or people that design rehab protocols, that low intensity activity is somehow safer, even if done in incredibly high volumes, as compared to like even a pretty well understood safe modality like tempo sprints or something. And it's, I, I don't, I don't specifically know where that comes from other than just maybe looking at like the rate of tissue loading or just like the, like the amount of force being put on a, on a particular structure during like a series of steps. And sure, it's going to be way lower with jogging, but you're going to accumulate, you know, a hundredfold more steps. Yeah. I think like looking at overall volume, like I, I think people think in terms of intensity and not in terms of volume and like load is load, right? So like if you do like five short burst sprints, like we can get high intensity without adding volume. And sometimes that's what the athlete needs. Sometimes it needs to be reversed. Like sometimes we need to build volume before we build intensity, but it's, I think it's always going to be person specific and injury specific. So right now, like to use an example, my two athletes who are coming back from ACL rehab or ACL reconstruction, one of them is very much a, like she could run for days. The other one is fast sprinter, all type two muscle fibers and was never like, it was never natural for the second athlete to be able to cut and change directions. Of course, like she could do it, but that wasn't her, her skill set before her injury. So now when I'm progressing them, the, the one who, you know, has a little bit better change of direction and agility, we can progress that side of things more than we can progress intensity of sprinting because that was never her strong suit anyway. Whereas the other one was always a more powerful explosive athlete. So we're more comfortable um, making that more intense first and progressing that before we progress volume and before we progress change of direction and, and cutting. Yeah. I mean, I think in my mind, and again, thinking about this in the lens of ultimate Frisbee, it's like these athletes need a certain amount of jogging to be successful. Like they need to do the slow speed running thing fairly well, but then also they need to be able to do the sprinting thing well. And then also they need to be able to change direction well. And those are three disparate skill sets. And I think what irks me about the approach of we're just going to jog these people slow is the notion that the slow jogging somehow leads into the other two. Yeah, yeah. When when in reality, like it's just a completely different thing. And if if an athlete doesn't have that skill set, then sure, I'm all for slow jogging. Probably to be successful at ultimate or soccer, you should be able to like run four to eight miles at a decently slow pace, and not be blown up. But that's not a progression to sprinting. That's just exactly. a different thing. We'll be back to the show after this quick message. FMS, FRC, PRI, AED, NSFW, the world, specifically the industries of physical therapy and strength conditioning, is filled with confusing acronyms, certifications, and jargon. If you find that you've taken a metric shitload of these types of courses, but have no ability to carry the information over into your practice, you don't need more information. You need a mentor, someone to act as a sounding board someone to guide you towards putting seemingly disparate parts of the movement and health puzzle together, someone to help you develop your own model that you can immediately put into action. While I certainly don't claim to know everything, I'm happy to serve in that role. 
My one-on-one mentorship calls are 60 minutes and will leave you with a clearer, more confident idea of how to best leverage what you already know in order to best help the next client that walks through your door. Stop collecting piles of three-ring binders and start taking a more active role in your professional development. Find out more by going to timrichart.com services. And now back to the show. Yeah, they're entirely different skill sets and require, therefore, entirely different progressions. So, Nicole, here comes the moment of truth. What's your number one? Going back too soon. That's the number one problem. Um, I mean, just simply after an ACL reconstruction, I don't know where all of a sudden people thought that four to six months was an okay time frame to come back from an ACL <laughs> reconstruction. Like, thank God that that is that paradigm shift is happening and that we're no longer putting that expectation on athletes. Because, you know, just from the literature now, every month that we're delaying return to sport decreases the risk of a second ACL injury. And even with a, with a muscle strain, you know, that isn't a very long-term rehab in many cases. Sometimes it is. Um, but even that, if we put them back too soon and have them, it's all about what are they prepared to do. And if they're not prepared to do something, then you wait until they are, but don't put them in a situation where, because when they're on the field, when they're on the pitch in a game, they are not going to self-limit. Maybe in a practice session, they can say, actually, it hurts when I serve this long ball. So I'm just going to play short balls. I'm not going to serve a long ball. They are not going to be able to make that decision in the game. If they have to serve a long ball, they're going to serve it. and It doesn't matter if it hurts. They're going to do it. So if they aren't prepared for it, why are they, why are we putting them in a situation where we're forcing them to do that thing they're not prepared for? And I think going back too soon is a very easy way of getting re-injured. You think it's as simple as, not as simple as like, but I mean, do you think there should just be a minimum amount of time for a various subset of injuries? Yeah, I think we should always look at biological tissue healing as the limiting factor in time to return to sport. Mm. Now, ACL injuries is a little bit different because if we're truly looking at biological like, tissue healing times, the ligamentization process for a graft ACL is going to be two years. Nobody's waiting two years to go back to sport after an ACL reconstruction. So in that case, we look more ob- objective-based criteria and not just time. But um, for like soft tissue injuries, yeah, like if, if we're pushing them back, and I don't think it should be the sole thing. Time should never be the sole indicator. It should just be something that we're always considering. Like think something, an easy example is a bone fracture. Before six weeks, you're not going to have them go back to doing any significant loading because we know that it's not healed yet. They need some loading to help promote tissue healing, but we're not going to do more than what we they can do because we know it takes six weeks for bone tissue to start healing and remodeling. So I think we just always need to, I think we can be very quick to forget about tissue healing times. And that always needs to be the limiting factor. Yeah. It's like, it's kind of a cultural thing where it's like a badge of honor to come back from a serious injury or a surgery really quickly, right? Like everybody wants to be Adrian Peterson in that season (laughs) where he comes back 10 months post ACL and sets the single season rushing record. But it's like, that's not the goal. Like the goal is not to get back as quickly as possible. The goal is to get back as effectively as possible. And I think it's incumbent upon the physical therapist to engender that kind of mindset. Yeah. And as like a rule of thumb, kind of answering your previous question, 
for youth athletes, I put a hard line at 12 months. Like there's no reason for you to come back before 12 months after an ACL reconstruction. If you're a 15 year old girl, like there's yeah. no reason you're in no rush. You might as well see this as an opportunity to get stronger and healthier, more resilient, uh, start implementing a good holistic SNC program. It's truthfully a lot of, a lot of athletes who participate in women's sports or in girls sports don't have any type of introduction to or access to a lifting program until they've already become injured, right? That's usually their first gateway into, into lifting or into an SNC program. And so I would say any youth athlete, hard line at 12 months, you'd have to be a very special case for me to allow before 12 months, even my professional athletes, I'm never thinking earlier than nine months. And I, I have, I have one right now who will be 12 months and one who will be nine months. I had that exact experience when I tore my ACL in high school. That was basically my gateway into how I ended yeah. up where I am right now. That's when I started lifting weights and everything kind of went on from there. ACL yeah, tears, the most, the most effective gateway drug to lifting. <laughs> the most typical <laughs> female athlete thing you could say. I mean, it's true though. Like, like athletes who participate in boys and men's sports from a young age. And it, this is just kind of like a societal gender norm that we put onto, um, onto boys and, and young men is that, Oh yeah, go play on the monkey bars, be rough and wrestle. And this is, it's this societal thing that we place into male presenting, um, athletes and, and kids and we don't do that for female presenting athletes and kids. You know, we, we say we have them be more feminine, whatever that means, and, and girly and, and not, we don't allow for the roughhousing and, and the wrestling and the monkey bars and, and the skateboarding and the falling down, right? So I think that those gender norms from young ages kind of leads to now this, this, Boys are maybe obviously that obviously there's physiologic and anatomical differences between um, boys and girls, men and women in sport. But I think that also the societal and cultural norms that we put on those genders is, is a huge factor. And once a female athlete gets injured, especially an ACL injury, I think that's a massive opportunity to introduce them to the world of lifting and, and strength and conditioning. I remember in physical therapy school, there was a big push about um, like this concept of criteria-based rehab, where it's not going to be hard timetables. You're only going to progress when you can demonstrate this functional quality. But I really think there is a role and a simplicity to these hard lines in the sand. Like personal example, I had a labral reconstruction, my left hip back in November. In the protocol, it just says you're not running until five months post-op. And it's like, when we think about tissue healing timeframes, like that labrum is not going to be fully incorporated to like 12 to 24 months post-op. But if, but I could bullshit any, any rehab protocol and demonstrate great isolated strength, great functional strength. And it's like, it's really, really useful just to say like, I'm not going to even think about things that, that remotely look like running until that month five time, time point. Exactly. I do think it's a nice expectation to set, right. To, to tell an athlete for me to tell an athlete, you will not play in a game until at least nine months. Good. They're not even thinking about that. Now they can just focus on, on the small steps to mm -hmm. get there. And they don't have to think about that day in the future. Whereas, you know, then maybe you can go back on it and say, 
hey, actually, you're doing really well. You're not quite at nine months yet. You're at eight and a half months or whatever it is. But let's, you know, you're doing really well. How do you feel about it? Obviously, make sure that objectively they're ready to face the demands before you throw them into it. But I have an athlete right now who I've told it'll be at least 12, 13 months until you play in a game. And if it's earlier than that, that's fantastic. Everyone's only going to be happy about that. But if I tell an athlete, yeah, some athletes come back in six months and all of a sudden we're at six months and they're nowhere near ready, that's only going to be a bad thing for them. That's only going to affect them negatively. Yeah, that's incredibly well said. So to, to kind of wrap it up and recap things, so we had six points in the ways that field athletes mess up return to sport training. We had, going from the bottom to the top, too little sport-specific work early in rehab, giving in to external pressure, being separated from the team entirely, or being in quote-unquote rehab jail, no on-field <laughs> rehab program, too much linear slow jogging with not enough emphasis on sprinting and change of direction, and Nicole's number one, going back too soon. Nicole, any closing thoughts on any of those or this list in general? I would just say, I think that a lot of that can be, like some of those things can be incorporated into the same point of like not preparing the athlete for their specific demands, right? Like not knowing what the end goal is and working backwards from there. So if you like, I can take a room full of athletes and apply the same program. They'll all get stronger and improve somewhat. They'll all heal eventually just because of regression to the mean. Um, but, and natural history of, of injuries, they'll heal eventually. But if you aren't looking at what the end goal is, what the specific demands that each athlete will face and prepare them specifically for that, I think that's kind of what a lot of our points lead into. I think that's so important because we talked a little bit here on this podcast about, I just drives me crazy when people give these like blanket statements of like, Oh, they just need to get stronger. (laughs) Oh no, that's complete bull. And it's like, that just tells me that you can't look ahead to see like, what does this person need to be capable of do? And you can say, those are certain skills. And then our role within that athlete is to say, oh, I'm going to take you from where you currently are to where you need to be related to those skills. I'm going to break down the abilities within those skills. And that's what I'm going to train. And so now when you go back, you have the, the skills, which like the exercise are basically like isolated drills of a skill. And that's what you really need to start thinking down, like categorically thinking instead of like this overall, I'll just do strength. I'll do some aerobic work. I'll do this and that. And they'll, they will get better magically. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think that's like too easy for people to be like, okay, the first three months we'll build aerobic capacity. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, that's a good general guideline for sure. But look at the end game first and then work backwards and work your drills and exercises into that framework at that point. Like, okay, so what if I'm building aerobic capacity in the first couple couple weeks here, how does that relate to what they have to do later? So in soccer, if they are covering, you know, five, six kilometers in a game, more usually more than that, more like eight, nine to 12 kilometers in a game. Are, am what I, is what I'm doing in this aerobic block contributing to that down the road? Like you always have to relate it to the end goals. Mm-hmm. I, I think back to like an Instagram post, my, you know, idol and man crush Doug Kajijan had like many years ago, <laughs> but I remember it was like, so it was a video of him doing a cutting drill. And then like the next slide was like him doing some kind of a chopper lift 
And then it was like a, like a left side lying right clamshell. And it was like, you know, the like this regression is all with that end goal in mind. Like mm-hmm. a clamshell has context when you appreciate what that joint action is when it's actually going to matter. And I think that that's something like you guys were saying, like not having that end goal, not having that context leads to these really like listless, rudderless type of programs and directions of rehab. And that's like something that drives me crazy about when people say the term like, oh, that exercise isn't functional. And it's like, well, yes, it is, because this is why. Like, so a, a single leg leg extension after ACL re- reconstruction isn't, fu- I don't even know what the term like functional means to some people anymore. But, you know, to, like the function of that is to build quad strength. We need quad strength for deceleration tasks. We need deceleration tasks because that's a key component of soccer. If I'm going to try to beat someone 1v1, if I'm going to go up to defend someone, in order to change direction, you need deceleration. So it's even something as isolated and specific as a leg extension has a function and a purpose, but you have to relate it to what that is. I love how we finally got Nicole fired up at the end of this yeah. podcast. Oh, man. I, <laughs> one of my it's- athletes asked me, like posted on her Instagram, like, me and her doing BFR leg extensions and her rehab, I was doing it with her. And somebody messaged her and was like, no, you shouldn't do those after an ACL reconstruction. And she sent it to me like screenshot with kind of laughing because she knows how I feel about it. And I literally get like an, like a rage. I don't get angry very often. Like I'm a very kind of mellow person. No, that is something that I feel a fire, literally fire of rage. (laughs) That's Guys, so it's it's only functional if it's done with a kettlebell or one of those on clubs that ball. you swing. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Definitely. It, it, it's funny because I I place like zero emotional like loading or value in like social media because it's like, you know, I don't know that there's zero context with anything. Yeah. And honestly, you're just you're just offering kind of a little piece or content on what you're doing. But when people do that in terms of like placing judgments and placing very strict yes or no's with everything mm. and good or bad, that's when I'm just like, okay, I have I'm no longer interested in what you have to offer. Exactly. It just it like makes me think of all like the love slash hate of the Turkish getup, right? Like <laughs> Like, like the Turkish getup is not like, yeah, it's getting up off the ground, but like, are we going to load it to a certain extent where it turns into something? But it's just like, mm-hmm. it's become this like messiah of the quote unquote functional world. Cause it like incorporates multiple muscles without actually achieving anything meaningful. That's a tangent. Yeah. I, I, I wonder what accounts you're following, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> we'll link to him in the show like, notes. Perfect. It's the same thing as like a burpee, like, right? Like everyone, it's either yes. like- nobody should ever do a burpee or yes. everyone should do burpees. Like maybe sometimes some people can do burpees. Like, yeah, why not? There, there are some situations when maybe it's a fine thing to be doing for some people. <laughs> like yeah. there's no, I don't understand these like hard yes or no on things. Yeah. Well, just God. like in a Turk, in a Turkish getup, if you were laying on the ground with your toddler and you had to get up from the ground, <laughs> holding your toddler with a, with a flat palm, then you would train sure, that via yeah. Turkish getup. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Now, uh, Nicole, can you tell people where they can find out more about you? Yes. So you can follow me on Instagram at Dr. Nicole PT or on Twitter at NCertica Physio. I'm sorry that they're not the same thing. They're like the same <laughs> handle. That would obviously make life so much easier. 
but I, I didn't love, I don't love like Dr. Nicole PT because I just don't like using like the title of doctor. Um, so on Twitter, I chose not to, but it was too late for Instagram. Um, I also have a website, which is NicoleCerticaPhysio.com. And I post blogs less frequently now as I used to, but I'm trying to get back into it. And I have some eBooks on there and uh, teach a couple courses every now and again. So you can find information on those on my website. Awesome. And I was, so I was looking through your blog and I think it's just a fantastic resource for people. So I highly recommend that. And I've heard, I've heard really, really good things about the ethics course that you put out like March or April of 2020. Yeah, I put it out. And actually I was speaking with Amy Arundel. Um, she's, I call her my, my friend tour cause she's my friend and also my mentor. Um, but she and I were talking about doing kind of a next iteration of that ethics course with kind of all the ethical dilemmas that I've learned just since joining a professional sport team and ethical dilemmas surrounding COVID. And, mm. you know, we're reporting positive cases and giving names, but that's kind of a HIPAA violation, but we're in a pandemic. So there's a gray area and there's just uh, the vaccines cause its own ethical issues. So yeah, we're, I, I think we'll probably team up at some point when both of us are a little less busy to, to make a second of that. Yeah, that sounds like leaps and bounds more exciting and applicable than the like bevy of ethics courses I had to take during my doctorate program. So that's the thing. Like, like there are certain restrictions and requirements of ethics courses. Like you have to talk about the American Physical Therapy Association's code of ethics. But if you can apply them in ways that are meaningful to people's jobs and lives, then I think it's a lot more, uh, a lot more manageable. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Nicole. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. This was fun. I like this format. It was good. Nice. That's a win for us. <laughs> Thanks again, <laughs> Nicole. Thank you for listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more positive reviews we get, the easier it becomes for fine movement professionals like you to find us, and the more time Michelle and I can devote to bringing on high caliber guests and continuing to produce a high quality show. If you're still listening, that means you're pretty cool. And that likely means your friends are pretty cool too. We'd love for them to become fans of the show. Spread the injury prevention love and the biomechanical knowledge by sharing a screenshot of your favorite episode on Instagram. Be sure to tag at Dr. Michelle Bolin and at Tim Richard DPT when you do. Now get out there and go train.